0: Kia ora, mai ki te Fare. welcome to The House, I'm Johnny Blades. We've just completed the first full week of the 54th Parliament, and like all parliaments, in these early weeks it goes through a kind of birthing process where it finds its own shape and mood, nowhere so much as how it interprets its own rules.
1: Here's Phil Smith. The first weeks of any parliament are a bit like a new classroom with a brand new teacher, where students test the teacher to get a feel for just where the
2: lines are. You were citing a previous government's policy, and as you know, that's not permissible. The member himself uh, would have probably elicited that very rule from a speaker (laughs) in the past.
1: It's not like each parliament makes up its rules afresh each time. Parliament has many rules already, they're called standing orders, and as many speakers' rulings, the common law that has developed over time as various speakers have interpreted those rules. And here's where it gets interesting, because like with the Bible, you can often find a speaker's ruling to support extremely varied interpretations, and you'll see that play out in a moment. With each new Speaker, the MPs are keen early on to see where the new Speaker might land and whether they can nudge them in a direction useful to their own team, which means that early question times are often both long and combative.
0: Point of order, Mr Speaker. Yeah,
1: point of order. The, the question would have
0: had to be authenticated. Therefore, you have accepted
1: that the question is valid. Therefore, you should, accept, you
0: should require the Minister to provide an answer. Yeah,
2: as you know, many times there are uh, questions that are asked in this House that... Uh, the the uh, argument of authentication, authentication has, been, has been run and, and not necessarily accepted by the Minister who is answering the question. Now, What I do is irrelevant here. What he says is what the House gets as an answer in addressing a question. I'm sorry that that's the way it is. It's not changed from when other point, Ministers point were in the, House the House. Yes.
0: I, I recall a, a previous uh, shadow leader of the House asking a then Speaker, whether or not a minister could stand up and simply say rhubarb in answer to a question Uh, because at that point the Speaker had ruled very similarly to what you have ruled today that simply standing up and giving an answer was sufficient to address the question. So I once again raised the point of order that was raised by the then Honourable Gerry Brownlee to the then Speaker, I can't remember which Speaker it was at the time, um, as to whether or not that continues to apply.
2: Well I can assure you that the Honourable Gerry Brownlee got a very unsatisfactory answer at that time and I'm sorry, I can't give you a better one now.
1: <laughs> there were many points of order. That's the process whereby an MP asks the Speaker to rule on a perceived breach. And a number of interesting rulings that arose from them. The overall theme, though, was heard in that interchange between the Speaker and Chris Hipkins, and in this one with Grant Robertson. When well, I'm to Speaker, I don't believe
0: that
2: question was addressed oh, in that answer. I asked her whether she was, was ruling it out or not. Oh, well, that's, uh, that's often the case, the question... ...is asked, an answer is given, the question is addressed. uh... (laughs) That's that's very philosophical, Mr Speaker.
1: The new Speaker is portraying his role as ambivalent about how a minister chooses to answer a question... ...and powerless to change it. This isn't revolutionary. Speakers vary enormously. Speakers in recent years have ranged from sternly requiring good answers... To very hands off.
2: It has always been the case. In fact, uh, uh, st- uh, Speaker's ruling 1994 makes it very clear uh, the, the, the parameters for ministers able to uh, decide not to answer a question.
1: That ruling is from the Maldunias and says the Speaker cannot force a minister to give an answer to a question and has no responsibility for the quality of the answer given. It's possible that the Speaker was conflating that ruling with 1996 that lists three possible reasons for not answering as privacy, national security or commercial sensitivity. MPs tried to draw his attention to other Speaker's rulings that sit next to that one, Kieran McEnulty.
0: But also 1993 says that where a question is clear, there's
3: an
1: expectation that ministers answer it. As I said earlier, in Parliament, you can often find a ruling to back you up. It got a lot harder, though, when Rawiri Waititi asked a question of Winston Peters in Te Reo. Not something very unusual these days, which is why MPs have access to simultaneous translation into English. It was difficult to hear the interchange, but it seemed that Winston Peters was indicating to the Speaker that he would answer the question if it was in English, otherwise not.
2: The question doesn't need to be answered if the minister doesn't or Prime Minister in this case doesn't feel like he wants to answer it. So
0: Mr Speaker,
3: um, a question I mean, I guess strictly speaking your ruling is in order, but the practice in the time I've been in the House is that that is uh, only done when a question is definitively out of order.
1: It's worth noting that Winston Peters did ultimately answer some further questions that were also asked in Tadeo. There was quite a bit of discussion before that about his balking at the language, but the Speaker held that it wasn't up to him if a Minister chose not to answer. Kieran McEnulty, who's now the Shadow Leader of the House, requested the Speaker think further on this new situation and come back to them.
2: Well, I take the, the, the uh, Member's point on board and uh, I will in fact uh, reflect a little further on it. It's one of the penances you do in this job is reflecting on these <laughs> things, so... Uh, I'll go ahead with that and uh, come up with where it might be.
1: The Speaker did report back to the House on Wednesday to note that the Business Committee had met to discuss the use of te reo in question time.
2: And I want to reiterate the right of every Member to use any official language uh, of New Zealand in the House.
1: He noted that in future the translators will pause a few seconds to allow MPs to pick up their earpieces. He did not, though, come back with any further reflections on his indication that a minister can simply decide to refuse to answer a question. Any question. Thanks, Phil. Now, while Parliament's
0: been in urgency in this hectic period before Christmas, most MPs are undergoing a kind of crash course of learning and adjustment, not just for those first-time MPs learning on the job, coming to grips with Parliament's environment, but also those MPs who are now in an opposite mode to the way they operated here in the last several years. Like National MP Chris Pink, the member for Kaiparaki Mahurangi, and freshly sworn in as the Minister for Building and Construction, as well as Minister for Veterans Affairs and for Land Information as well, in addition to Associate Minister of both Defence and Immigration Portfolios. Yeah, it is is quite sudden because um, one minute
3: you're in... Opposition, I suppose just to move quickly forward, one minute you're in government, obviously there's a long process with um, a thing called an election that needs to take place and and following that a lot of negotiations and discussion and coalition agreement that takes place well above my pay grade but all the same, you know, relatively speaking, having spent six years in opposition, it does feel quite sudden to be in government and in a ministerial position at that. Is there an induction process? Yeah, uh, ministerial services do run an induction process and some of it is with the Cabinet Office and they take you through the rules of the game and some of it's quite familiar because it's things that you're aware of from the outside. Um, you know you know what ministers do because as an opposition spokesperson you observe from the outside and you try to hold them to account, uh, trip them up quite frankly, but um, obviously when the boot's on the other foot you need to know very clearly what the rules are. Um, And so you need to know from that that heightened perspective that as a decision-maker, as a minister, you've got to be really careful with conflicts of interest, for example, whereas every other MP uh, needs to declare pecuniary interest once a year and it's a, a bit more set and forget. Are there training sessions as such? Yeah, over the course of a week um, following swearing in, um, there were a number of training sessions that took place in the morning of each day and in the afternoon, one would frantically um, run around and and try and sort of do one's job, Um, albeit that there's an element of induction with a lowercase i that takes place um, over a period of time when you're trying to work out everything. So you get the formal briefings, but you're also in a process where you're constantly learning. Who's giving the briefings? Uh, subject matter experts in the relevant field, so um, uh, the Cabinet Secretary in relation to what happens in Cabinet... Um, And actually that's relevant to ministers outside Cabinet too, such as me, uh, because we need to know what processes are taking place um, at those higher levels and how we fit into that, but also from time to time we'll attend Cabinet and and present papers and so forth. Um, Other um, experts um, have given advice on the role of the Governor-General in terms of signing off um, regulations uh, and so forth, um, actually signing primary legislation into law as well. So you get Um, a really good briefing from people who know exactly what they're going to be doing and who you'll be working with quite closely.
0: And I suppose the reading that you will have to do, is it right to say that it's going to be a bigger pile?
3: Yeah, it is a bigger pile. Uh, I mean, there's always a lot of reading as uh, an MP. So in the select committee context, you've got your papers to read once a week, um, but actually just the sheer volume is greater as a minister. Um, So you need to be aware of uh, what's happening in the different government agencies, and they are very proactive about bringing issues to you. Uh, and of course, it's a two-way street as well, because not only you've got what they put in front of you, but also you've got an obligation to uh, represent to them your priorities as, uh, you know, campaigned upon as a member of a political party. And then, you know, in accordance with the coalition agreements and the 108 plan and so forth. So um, a lot of reading, a lot of discussion. Um, and, you know, that's that's just the process of government making policy and then putting it
0: into action. I've heard before sometimes new ministers have a mentor or perhaps mentors. Do you have something like that at your disposal? Uh, we don't have um, a
3: formally designated person, but um, certainly there are colleagues that I lean on pretty heavily because they've been around a bit longer. Um, some have been ministers before. Um, others have been in the building for a long time because they worked as advisors to ministers and even former prime ministers. Um, so there are good sources of advice available. I think Um, in the spirit of learning in the job, though, a lot of it is just interacting with other ministers because you have um, little conversations when you almost literally bump into them. I I tend to try to go to the Beehive too, because I'm located in the Parliament House, which is not quite the same building. Technically, it's all part of the same complex, but uh, I like to go there because then I can just sort of interact with people who I bump into and just ask, you know, what's going on in a space that's quite relevant because it's related. So, for example, I'll... Uh, you know, talk to the staff uh, of the Minister for Infrastructure and the Minister himself, uh, because I am building and construction, so there is naturally a tie-in. So you've always got to have those relationships and that constant dialogue, even outside the formal um, forum that is, you know, for example, cabinet or cabinet committee.
0: Yeah. Did you want these portfolios? Was it something you you know you discussed with the leadership of your party in advance? Um, I had said to the now Prime Minister um,
3: when he was the Leader of the Opposition that I'd be delighted to serve in any capacity whatsoever. So in that spirit, absolutely yes. Um, That said, there is a change that happens when you go from opposition to government because um, for reasons uh, that are um, external to one's own party, there are positions in Cabinet that of course are, are provided to coalition partners. You know, There's sort of been an element of a reshuffle there. Um, And in my case, personally, having been senior whip in opposition and having relatively few policy responsibilities, because my main responsibility was that more Internal focus of you know maintaining discipline and organisation, Co- coordinating as the team exactly coordinating. So 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 doing more of that um, naturally. I didn't have um, so much policy responsibility to translate easily to go from opposition spokesperson for X to minister for X. So um, for that reason, I've picked up things that I hadn't
0: been doing so much in opposition. Yeah. So I mean, you've been an MP for six years, basically. This is like a watershed time, I suppose, for you in a way, because you came in as an Opposition MP. Great way to learn, I guess.
3: Yeah, really good to learn as an Opposition MP. Um, you wouldn't want to do it for too long um, because they say that the, the worst day in government is still better than the best day in Opposition, and I think it's probably <laughs> true so far. You know, we'll, we'll test that as time goes on. But, yeah. Um, yeah, certainly a great place to learn from the Opposition benches. So from a career trajectory point of view, it's actually quite good to come in in Opposition, I think, Um and to make use of that time to try and understand how Parliament as a whole works um, and then you can sort of um, step up into the ministerial
0: role if you're fortunate enough to get that. Yeah, and and early days I guess, but you will be strategising on how to field questions in the chamber and so forth and written questions?
3: Yeah, I think you learn um, by doing certainly, so um, hopefully there'll be an opportunity to to put that into action and, and to get you know, good as time goes on, but also, you know, having used um, my time wisely, hopefully within the six years I've been here already from an opposition point of view, watching which uh, ministers on the other side answered questions really well or maybe poorly or just had a different style. So um, it's one thing to, you know, to observe and another thing to put into practice, but certainly I've had that opportunity and and um, hopefully we'll be able to um, uh, make use of that. <laughs> yeah, sort of on the job training at a distance uh, in due course. Indeed.
0: Can you still tweet, do things like that?
3: <laughs> yeah, I'll still be at Chris Pink NZ, um, on X. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the interesting thing. You you become a minister, but you're also still an MP and you still have local electorate responsibilities. You still have the opportunity for a profile on social media that goes beyond one's own portfolios. But having said that, you've got to be a bit careful that you don't stray into others' uh, areas of responsibility or inadvertently make a statement that looks like it might be on behalf of a government, um, You know, cause a diplomatic incident and so on. So it's just a slightly... Uh, raised stakes kind of game compared with being a member of a political party in opposition because the implications in terms of uh, the outside world watching um, to see what is said and done
0: uh, is just a bit more real when you're in that decision-making uh, capacity. New Government Minister Chris Pink, and you've been listening to The House, a programme made possible with funding from Parliament's Office of the Clerk. Kia pai tora.